Welcome to the Hebrew Bible Insights Podcast. I'm Matthew Delaney, and today I'm recording a bonus episode uh, for Easter. It's such a special time for us as Christians, and I felt compelled to do an episode that shows how understanding Hebrew uh, for a particular poem in the Bible uh, magnifies the awesomeness of Jesus. That's pretty much the best way I can put it. So, uh, perhaps when you're reading some of the Gospels for Easter, or maybe when you're in church and you're hearing a pastor go through uh, some of the narrative of the of the death and resurrection of Jesus, maybe you remember that in two of the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark, they record Jesus' last words being, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And whenever we read these words from Jesus and, and what's surrounding why he's saying this, it feels very sad, very painful, and it feels like defeat. So for many of us, we look at this and think these are simply Jesus' words of agony. He's been tortured, he's been crucified, and these are Jesus' words of agony. And maybe for some of you who really like to study the Bible and study scripture, maybe you've heard that that Jesus is not just saying his own words of agony, but that he's actually quoting a line from the Old Testament, that he's quoting specifically Psalm 22, verse 1, which opens up saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but even here, we're basically left with saying, Okay, so now Jesus, it's, he's specifically quoting a verse from the Old Testament, but these are still words of agony. And this is the low point of the story. And we know the resurrection is coming, but we're going through the, the low point of the story, the terrible part. We're going through the death, and that's what's happening here. Uh, but I want to show you how, uh, how this story is actually something very different and something that's very powerful, full of hope, and full of meaning for us. So the first thing that's important to realize is this, we're going to get a little Bible nerdy here, but it's important, and this will enlighten a lot of your New Testament reading specifically. Uh, but here's the first idea I want you to realize, is that Jesus actually isn't quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. In fact, Jesus is quoting all of Psalm 22. Now, why is this the case? Uh, whenever uh, ancient authors are quoting other texts, we can see this very clearly in the Bible, they often aren't quoting the entire thing they're wanting to quote. And the primary reason is that to write anything in the ancient world was very expensive. It wasn't like writing on Microsoft Word or using Google Docs to write something. And whenever maybe you, whenever you're in college and you're writing a paper, you can have a really long quote. And it's very cheap to print out an extra half page because that's how long it is. In the ancient world, the amount of words you used, it counted because you're writing on things like animal skin, for example, during the time of Jesus, or maybe papyrus. And these are very expensive things to use. And so often, the, a common way to quote something uh, uh, in the Bible was to use a phrase or a line, sometimes even just a word. We see the same thing happen not just in the Bible, but in ancient Jewish writings uh, uh, in the time period right around when Jesus uh, was living. This is how they quoted scripture. And what they basically were assuming is, you're familiar with the biblical story, you're familiar with these songs, and if I just say this phrase, or if I say this line, you'll know what story I'm talking about. And in fact, I want you to be thinking about that whole story. 
A great example that we'll go into probably in another podcast episode is the way that Mark opens up his gospel account. Um, But you can think of modern examples of this, uh, where you can think of famous movie lines or the beginning of famous books, and if someone just merely quotes that line, you know exactly what they're thinking about. And for these biblical authors, they're doing these things because they want you to be thinking about not just one line. Maybe sometimes it's just one line, but often they want you to think about a whole story or a whole poem. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He wants you to think about the whole story. In fact, both Matthew and Mark, they want to make sure we get this because they do something that's very rare in the New Testament is that they they preserve what Jesus said in Aramaic. And so they transliterate what Jesus says, and then they they translate it. So, for example, in the uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, here's what Jesus says. This is Matthew 27, verse 46. Looks like here we go. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying. And then what is next is, as you're reading in English, it's going to be very confusing. Uh, you'll look at it and you might think Eli, Eli, and then the next word after that's what's going on here. Le Masabachtani, whatever. It's very weird. And if you keep reading, it says, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what he, what he just said. That's what that means in Aramaic, which is a related language to Hebrew, which is one of the languages Jesus spoke uh, when he was on earth. So uh, he's actually quoting uh, Psalm 22, verse 1. And Matthew and Mark does the same thing. They want to make sure that we understand that that's what's going on here. So, and now that we understand that that's, this is how quoting worked in the, in the ancient world in terms of writings, the New Testament authors do this a lot, and Jesus is doing this here, this now begs the question, this isn't just about Psalm 22.1, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by itself, it just feels very defeat, very pain. When we, read the, when we go through the whole psalm, what's going on here? In fact, I would encourage you to read all of Psalm 22. That'd be a great thing to do today. It's very short. Uh, and as you read it, I think you'll be amazed at what's going on in this poem. I'll go ahead and pull out the curtain real quick here and say, uh, for me, a few years ago, I found myself, uh, it was coming up to Easter time, and I was working at a church, which I really loved doing. But during Easter time, I found myself actually not that excited about it. Uh, Easter, to me, it was it was something that, okay, there are a lot of services that I'm needing to work, and yes, this is good. I'm glad we're doing it. This is a story I've heard a lot before. I understand this story. Yes, it's the most powerful story ever, but I just, I wasn't motivated about it. And maybe you found yourself in a similar spot. And, and for this year, I realized, you know, this is a problem. And so I prayed to God, and I said, God, I ask that you would show me the power of the story of Jesus in his death and resurrection and show this to me in a fresh way this year. And that was my simple prayer. And I have to tell you, he truly answered my prayer in an amazing way. And there were a number of things that that year that happened that just expanded my understanding of the story that moved me to awe of Jesus and inspired me to love other people in a better way. And one of the things that happened that year was as I read through Psalm 22, I felt, I felt like I was supposed to read Psalm 22 and as I read this poem in Hebrew, I was just, I was moved with great emotion. And uh, I, I found myself just just amazed as I read this. So that's part of what's coming out in this podcast here. So whenever you read Psalm 22, 
The short way of explaining how it's structured is the very beginning section expresses pain. There's a lot of pain going on here for the original author. And I think this also probably correlates to Jesus because, he, again, he's literally being tortured. And he's on the cross and everything that's been leading up these few days, I'm sure he's in a lot of pain uh, as well. The middle part of Psalm 22 is packed with prophecy about the depiction of the cross scene. This is really cool. And so if you reread through Matthew and Mark, the sections that talk about Jesus on the cross, like if you reread Matthew 27 and Mark 15, you'll find there are some lines that exactly correlate to what is written in Psalm 22. So just a few examples, Matthew 27 verse 39 says, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads. That's directly quoted, that's uh, directly connected to Psalm 22 verse 7. Um, And then 43 says, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. This is the scribes and some of the chiefs who are mocking him. This is Psalm 22 verse 8. If you go into Mark, uh, in Mark 15, verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is Psalm 22, verse 18. Uh, and then once again, we have people who are mocking him and says, and they passed by him, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, that's Psalm 22, 7 again. And so if you, if you go through, uh, it's kind of just a fun little activity to see here. Again, the, the, just how amazing prophecy is in the Bible. So uh, that's the middle part. So then there's the last part of Psalm 22, which this is really what I want to highlight today and I think will give a great message of, of hope and power of transformation for you as well as for me. So the end of Psalm 22 paints a picture of powerful victory. So whenever you go through the whole psalm, yes, the beginning just expresses pain. The middle, packed with prophecy about the depiction of the crossing, and the end, though, paints a picture of powerful victory victory. So what do I want to emphasize first is this. The cross is not a place of defeat. It's a place of victory. I want to say that again. The cross isn't a place of defeat. It's a place of victory. This is the place where Jesus is beating death and he is beating the powers of darkness and he is beginning this new era of transformation for humanity and all of creation. And so why is Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he saying this? He's quoting Psalm 22. And this this psalm gives a great job of showing the picture of humanity. In fact, as you read Psalm 22, the beginning parts that express pain, uh, if you, if you, I think if you try to relate with the original author who lived before Jesus, I think we find this also kind of describes us a little bit. And there, there are some ideas of pictures of great anguish and what even feels like some hopelessness, but we're still trusting in God for something to come in the future. And we can relate to that. And the end of Psalm 22 gives us the picture of what that is. So in fact, I just want to read Psalm 22 verses 27 through 31. And I just want you to listen to this about how amazing this Psalm ends. Here's what it says. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. 
It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Wow, I don't even think I need to do commentary on this. The words speak for themselves. What passion and uh, power-filled verses that these are that speak of, of something incredible that the, po- that the ancient poet was looking forward to and prophesying in these moments. And this is fulfilled in what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the ultimate king who's inaugurating his kingdom and ushering in transformation for all reality. Uh, Of course, there's a little bit of an already but not yet thing going on here. Remember as Christians that things aren't exactly right now as God wants them to be, but still so much changed because of of the amazing ministry, the, the teachings, the healings, the love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Uh, Whenever we look at the context of Psalm 22, it gives us a different picture of what's going on on the cross. So uh, here's what I want to do now. Uh, I want to highlight one part of the end of Psalm 22 and show you how when you read the end of Psalm 22 in Hebrew, uh, we can see the magnitude of this victory. Again, I already read this in English, and the message is very clear what's going on here. But whenever you read uh, the Old Testament Hebrew, you'll find this all over the place, that there are, there are things that, that they pop in color. And the, there, there are things the author's trying to emphasize that are even more clear. Or there are things that are difficult to translate and we don't see the nuance of the double meaning happening. Uh, or, we, or we even misunderstand some stories. So here what I find is, we are, it's already clear that Psalm 22 is about victory. But when you read this in Hebrew, the magnitude of this victory is shown in a way that just blew my mind when I originally read this, and I want to share it to you in a way you'll be able to understand. And so, uh, the very last line in English is this: um, "They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it." Wow, how powerful is that? But now let me—I'm going to say what what's going on in Hebrew. This very last phrase, "That He has done it." And he, that is, uh, and this, this is ESV, that he has done. It is five words here. The Hebrew behind this translation is actually two words. It's only five letters, two words, very short. And it's, it's simply, ki asa, that he did it. Ki asa. And here's what's very interesting about this, is that there's actually no direct object in this phrase. There's no word it for this translation. When it says that he has done it, there's no word for it. In fact, if you have a a translation that is a little more literal, they'll often italicize that word, which means that word is actually not in the original text. So what's going on here? Literally what it says is, uh, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he did. And that's it. No, this is, you know, this is not an unfinished poem. The guy forgot to write the last word. That's not what's going on here. What's happening is something very powerful. So the idea is this. The question that you would walk away with is, Ki that he did what? And here's what the answer is. Yes. That he did what? Yes, exactly. The reason why there's no direct object in the original Hebrew, I think, is that to put any direct object there would lessen the magnitude of what's being done. So what's the point? What is it that he did? Everything. Everything. That's what he did on the cross. That 
is what has happened. And so whenever I read this in Hebrew, I'm just, I'm blown away at the magnitude of how awesome Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus is truly savior of all things. And that is what I see emphasized and magnified in the original Hebrew of this. Now, obviously it's very awkward to translate that in English. I understand why translators add the word it, and it doesn't change the feeling. It still feels like victory, but the original Hebrew author did something a little odd, not including a direct object to highlight how much he's done. And this isn't just transformation that happened in the past. It's something that happens now. And it's something that I've seen in my life, in my family's life, in my friends, in the community around me. It's amazing what Jesus has done. He changes you from the inside out, bringing transformation that you would never have thought was possible. He brings peace to families. And Jesus gives us a new perspective and power to love like never before. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the resurrection is all about. This is the point of Easter, and this is the point of Psalm 22. That's what Jesus is quoting. So I want to kind of land this plane and uh, be a little practical with this. Maybe you feel like me right now, how I did a few years ago in this season of Easter, not really feeling much about Easter. It's just, you know, here we are again. It's Easter again, and these are just things that we do and things we talk about at church. And what I encourage you to do is what I did, which was ask is ask God to show you in a fresh way the story of Easter, the power of the resurrection, and how this moment impacts you and your community. It's something I know that I needed. I needed a perspective check, and God gave it to me in a way that I needed to hear it. And hopefully what I've gone through in this podcast episode is maybe uh, is something that's beginning that process in you. But I encourage you to go to God with that. Maybe for you, you are fully aware of the transformation that God has done in your life. And the story of Easter excites you. And uh, you, you absolutely love this. Here's what I would encourage you to do is this. Share this story with the generation to come. When you go back to the end of Psalm 22, it says this. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The work that Jesus does in you is part of the gospel. We see this in, in throughout the, the different gospels that are written in the New Testament. When Jesus interacts with people and he does a transformation in them, other people are transformed by this, like, the, like the, when Jesus ran into the Samaritan woman and her life was transformed. When she went back to her community, the people there in her town were amazed. And they said, and they decided, we want to see Jesus too. And so I'd encourage you, find someone to share your story with. Maybe that looks like, um, you know, maybe you like posting on social media. What if you post one about giving us a glimpse of how Jesus transformed your life? Maybe, uh, maybe decide to eat dinner with your family at the table this time uh, instead of maybe watching TV and chilling. Maybe eat at the table and, and share with your kids something about how God, something amazing that God has done in your life. Or maybe it looks like calling someone, sending a text. Uh, or maybe just be prepared. Pray for God to send people your way who you can encourage with your story. So there's the last group I would say this. Maybe you feel like, for whatever reason, you just, maybe it's just this season of your life. You just, you don't feel you've experienced the life transformation that comes from Jesus. 
uh, even as Christians, we go through different times in our lives where we feel empty, we feel dry, we feel distant from God, and it's painful. And maybe for a while we decide to push it off. We we put it. We we don't want to address it. We don't want to think about this because it's just it's just too painful to think about, and it's easier to put it under the rug. Um, what I would encourage you is this: is to cry out to Jesus today. He will hear you and respond to you in a powerful way. I can totally relate to this at different times in my life. And I know so many others who experience this. Remember that what Jesus did on the cross was something that was done once and for all. And the work on the cross, it was amazingly transformative. And so why again, is there no direct object? I think in this, in the original Hebrew is that that direct object is supposed to be a blank space that no matter what it is, that is what he did. What did he do? Right? He transformed your family. He brought you out of addiction. He gave you a hope for a future. He brought you out from the dangerous place that you were in. He healed you. He was, he was, he was faithful to you and continued to be present with you even when other people in your life weren't faithful to you. There's so many things that he has done in our life and there is nothing that's too big for him. There's nothing that's too hard for him. There's no situation where we can where, where we can look and say, no, no, he wasn't able to do something about it. Every single story, when you bring it to Jesus, he does something amazing with it. And even for those of us that we experience the, the painful reality of life as it still currently is, remember that at the end, God will make, things, will make all things right. Um, there's a story that I heard today about uh, a pastor who... Uh, whose spouse uh, died from cancer, and many were praying. Many were praying for her healing, and she ended up still dying. And the pastor says, amazingly, that he he felt God speak to him and say say to the effect this: told him, you know, there are only two there are only two ways that I was going to answer your prayer. Either she was going to be healed, or she was going to be healed. Either things were going to be made better, or things were going to be made better. Either she was going to be treated well or she was going to be treated well. What, what was, what's God talking about here? Is that even if we don't experience healing to the way that we were wanting or expecting in this present reality, all things will be healed when Jesus comes again. All things will be healed and all things will be made right that are wrong. So um, hopefully this encourages you today and this Easter as, as this did for me a few years ago. And so I'll just end one more time uh, by reading uh, the very last line of Psalm 22 in Hebrew. They will come and they will tell of his righteousness to a generation that is yet born, that he has done it, that he did what? Everything, whatever it is, he has done it. He has transformed those things. So I hope you enjoyed this, the episode of this podcast and I look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thanks for listening to today's episode. A few ways that you can help support what I'm doing at Hebrew Bible Insights is to subscribe and share and leave a review for the podcast. You can also find me on Facebook at Hebrew Bible Insights. And uh, one last thing is you can find me on Patreon at Hebrew Bible Insights to give financially to help me on this mission. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.